Hi everyone, welcome to the Idiots Podcast, that's infectious disease insight of two specialists. I'm Jane, that's Callum, and we're going to tell you everything you need to know about infectious disease. Soon may the editing come to discontinue the Tazo Sun. One day when the CRP's done, we'll take our leave and go. Callum, what do you know about penicillin allergy? So, do you normally ask me how I'm doing? And I was thinking about what I was going to say. <laughs> I'm throwing you a curveball. Penicillin allergy. Uh, mm. I think I would know moderate to severe amount. Callum, how are you doing? I'm doing uh, warm. I'm feeling very warm. You're feeling warm. Fair enough. As a little coda to our penicillin talk a couple of weeks ago, we are going to talk about penicillin allergy, when to challenge that label and when not to. As an outline of what we're going to talk about tonight, we're going to talk about what they are, so what penicillin allergies are and how they work, so the physiology or the pathophysiology. A little bit about the, the prevalence or how common it is the true prevalence, that is, and then about the assessment of penicillin allergy and how we can delabel these patients. Well, I guess we could start by talking about why this is important. So I've been doing a lot of work locally on, on penicillin allergy, and in the last few years, a lot of people have been working to try and see which of these patients are truly uh, allergic. The, the reason is that you might just, you might think to yourself, why don't you just use another antibiotic? It's simple. Penicillins, beta-lactams are best of lactams. They are the best antibiotics in quite a lot of situations. They're bactericidal. They're relatively well tolerated. Some can be taken orally. And we know that there are negative outcomes associated with not being able to receive beta-lactams. People get put on antibiotics which are inferior, they stay in hospital for longer, they deteriorate more often, they have shorter life expectancies, they get more incidence of antibiotic-associated complications like C. difficile diarrhea, they get into ITU more frequently. And so you can avoid all of this by removing that penicillin allergy label, assuming that they are not allergic truly. It's beyond doubt now that having a penicillin allergy increases your risk of all these things. Let's go back to the basics, though, Calm. Let's um, uh, do a quick revision on hypersensitivity in general. Do you want to take us through the gel Coombs classification? I think people will be pretty familiar with the, the loose terms, but maybe less familiar with exactly how it works. So there's essentially four types of uh, reaction in the gel Coombs classifications, type 1, 2, 3, and 4. People will be familiar with a type 1 hypersensitivity reaction, which is essentially all of atopy, so including things like anaphylaxis. And uh, this is essentially the, the most, maybe not the most severe, because there are other uh, non-type 1 severe uh, allergic reactions, but it's the most acute, it's the rapidest onset uh, so type 1 is IgE-mediated. We'll talk more about it in a sec. Type 2 is uh, related to an IgG that is produced that then binds to a host cell antigen. And uh, when it binds to that target cell, it will produce, uh, it will induce killing of that target cell. So say if it's a red blood cell, you might get autoimmune hemolytic anemia. If it's cardiac tissue, you might get rheumatic heart disease. If it's thyroid tissue, you might get Graves' disease and so on. Type 3 
uh, would be IgG binding to a soluble antigen, and they will then form immune complexes that will then deposit in the joints and the kidneys. So think about rheumatoid arthritis, uh, post-streptococcal glomerulonephritis, there the, the trigger is uh, the streptococcal uh, pathogen and the IgG produced to that will cross-react to uh, glomerular tissue and reactive arthritis. And then lastly, type 4 is uh, Th1 cell-mediated direct damage. So this is uh, contact dermatitis, Hashimoto's thyroiditis is this, and also the severe cutaneous adverse reactions or scars, which we're going to talk about in a moment, are type 4 uh, mediated as well. But circling back to type 1, this is the driving pathology behind most allergies. So uh, your, your type 1 hypersensitivity is related to IgE. IgE is produced by B cells and plasma cells, but then it, uh, it binds to the um, FC epsilon receptor on basophils and mast cells, which are tissue-bound uh, basophils. And these cells, basophils and mast cells, they're, they're full of histamine and they're waiting for an antigenic trigger to trigger cross-linkage of the IgE uh, that is sitting on their cell surface. And if that happens, they cross-link, they release a ton of histamine and that produces local inflammation. That's what happens normally. And usually the trigger normally would be a parasite. By that, I mean a worm, a multicellular parasite. But if the trigger is not that and instead is something else, with like house dust mite uh, antigens or pollen, tree pollen, for example, or an antibiotic that the patient has been sensitized to, then that histamine release can produce atopic symptoms. So ranging from a rash to hay fever to asthma, all the way up to uh, antibiotic-related anaphylaxis. That's the underlying pathophysiology of penicillin allergy. But a lot of people will report that they are penicillin allergic when they are not penicillin allergic. So let's just talk for a little bit now about the epidemiology. It's quite complicated, the hypersensitivity and the different types. The most common ones we'd see is type 1 and type 4 uh, in clinical practice. And yeah. Type 2 and 3 are a bit more unusual, but worth being aware of. So in terms of talking about what's common and what's not, anybody that works clinically will be aware, and in, even non-clinically and just anecdotal, you know, you know friends or family that report a penicillin allergy. And often... That's a, as far as it goes. Often what you get in the history is when you speak to patients and you say, you've got any allergies? Oh, yeah, I've got a penicillin allergy. Oh, what's the nature of that? Oh, I don't, I don't know. know. <laughs> My mom says that I had a rash when I was a child. Yeah. Uh, probably the most common. And actually, a, a large minority of people will report a penicillin allergy. So about 10% of people that are hospital inpatients will report a penicillin allergy. And if you... Drilled on into that, when you look at when when you look at the, the data of those of that ten percent, only only ten percent of those patients will actually have an allergy, and of those patients, only ten percent of them will have a severe allergy. So if you that's quite a lot of percentages, but if you think about it in this way, if you have a thousand bed hospital, thousand people in a hospital, all the beds are occupied because it's the NHS, and of those 1,000 patients, 100 of them, so 10%, will state that they have a penicillin allergy. Of those 100 patients, 
10 of them actually have an allergy. And of those 10, only one will be truly severely allergic. So one in a thousand patients severe allergy, but actually a hundred of a thousand patients will state their penicillin allergic. And so the prevalence of penicillin allergy, when you truly look at it, is is low or rare. Although that said, you know, one percent of people truly having an allergy, you know, as as far as drug allergies go, is relatively common. And particularly with antibiotics, it's it's um, something that you encounter a lot. So that's sort of the the prevalence. I guess there's a much higher rate reported in hospital inpatients compared to patients who aren't in hospital. And there's a variety of reasons for that. Likely predominantly that these patients will, you know, they've had contact with health services and are more likely to be exposed to antibiotics like penicillins, or they've had previous exposure, for example. So how do, how do people get into this position where they, they say they've got an allergy and they don't truly have one? So it, it comes down to kids. That's one of the common situations where people re- mm. report gaining the penicillin allergy. Now, children get ill. Uh, they get viruses. Predominantly, they might get some bacterial infections, but they get a lot of different predominantly respiratory viruses, but many other ones as well. And these viruses come with rashes, a lot of them. Generally speaking, macular pacpidural is a whole range of different rashes um, from different illnesses. And we know from prescribing data that patients will often end up getting antibiotics for what are in fact viral infections. And the most commonly used antibiotics are going to be penicillin's beta-lactam antibiotics. And so you get to the situation where, you know, you've got a child who is unwell, they've got a fever, they've, you know, maybe got a sore throat or some other symptoms, a cough, and the parent's concerns, it takes them to the the their general practitioner or, or, or some other healthcare provider and you know, it's very difficult to tell and because they're unwell, they get given an antibiotic. And then they develop a rash as part of their viral illness, but that is then equated to, okay, well, they've got a rash and they've had an antibiotic, therefore they've got penicillin allergy. And often that, that nuance of that story is lost because you're asking the patient and they were the child. So how will they remember? Maybe all they remember is being told once they had a penicillin allergy, particularly when you're talking to an 80-year-old patient and this was you know, 70 years ago, you know, you're not going to remember that. Yeah. Well, that, that happens all the time that you encounter patients that have had been avoiding penicillins their whole lives. Now they're on the geriatrics ward and trying to remove that label is, is very difficult. I mean, this, uh, that story that you've told, it's even true of my wife. So my wife is labeled as penicillin allergic because she got a rash one time when she was given penicillin, when she was, you know, a few months old and now she's just not had penicillins ever. You know, she needed antibiotics uh, a few years ago. She got macrolides instead and people just kind of live like that. And if you're not really engaging with medical services because you're not unwell, it probably doesn't make very much difference. But if you start to engage with medical services more and more and you get infections and we want to give you the best antibiotic, for those infections and beta lactams are best of lactams, we're going to, those people have negative outcomes, like you just said. Hmm. The, the other way that people get these labels when they don't really have it is, and this is classic, they had a side effect to the hmm. antibiotic. And this can happen at any point. It can happen when they're younger, but it can also happen in adulthood as well. Another example, a recent example as well. So 
somebody was in and I think they were being treated for either discitis or staph aureus bacteremia. I, I can't remember. It was a lady uh, sort of in her 50s or, or thereabouts and they were on vancomycin and I asked why and they said they're penicillin allergic and so I had a little dig through the notes and what had happened was that the GP had added the penicillin allergy in 2012 because she had gotten nauseous with comoxiclav. But she had since tolerated multiple courses of amoxicillin and flucloxacillin and a bunch of other penicillins and some cephalosporins all the way through various admissions to hospital and uh, by the GP. And in fact, she'd had amoxicillin as recently as a couple of weeks before she presented uh, with uh, her eventual condition that kind of landed her on vancomycin. But she had been labeled as penicillin allergic. And for that reason, people were avoiding midlatams at all costs. So I then, what, what I did was I then said, okay, look, this lady has been tolerating amoxicillin multiple times. She's not penicillin allergic. Remove the label and instead add a label of sensitivity to clavulanic acid with the, with the side effect of nausea. That happened and the patient, I'm happy to say, went on uh, penicillins with no, no after effects. But that's how it can happen. You get a side effect, any side effect really, and because we don't really have a good way of documenting side effects separate from allergies, it just gets rolled into allergy. And then people, unless people look too closely, they kind of avoid the whole drug class. Yeah. And that's the other problem with penicillins is that if you, I think this is, I don't know how you feel about this, Cal, but I think this has become more and more of a problem is that if you are labelled as penicillin allergic, people get antsy about giving you cephalosporins as well. The idea is, I'm sure that everyone who's listening already realises, the idea is that you've got cross-reactivity between the, the penicillins and the cephalosporins, and the historical rate that you will see reported in the textbooks is 10%. That is ludicrously high. It's closer to 2%, and the cross-reactivity is very specifically related to amino penicillins, so that's penicillin, amoxicillin, uh, and ampicillin, if you've got access to that, and the first-generation cephalosporins. So in the UK, the commonest ones in use are cephalexin, which is given orally for UTIs and things like that, and cefazolin, which is given IV for skin and soft tissue infections predominantly, it has a very similar spectrum of action to, to flucloxacillin. So those are the two ones in common use. And them and the aminopenicillins cross-react a bit, and their cross-reactivity is probably close to between 2 and 6%, maybe closer to 2%. But that is about it. And once you get above that, the second and third generation cephalosporins cross-reactivity with aminopenicillins is virtually nil. Hmm. And even, I guess, not just cephalosporins to, to other penicillins, I guess looking at this from... The mechanics reason, my understanding is that the main reason for people to get reactions to, and we've been saying penicillin allergy, which is, I think there's some, um, the report that that term doesn't really exist because uh, it, it usually used to refer to pan beta lactam uh, allergy, which is not, not generally a thing because the reaction is to the, the side chains. So we, when we talked about penicillins before, we mentioned that these are beta lactams. So they've got a beta lactam ring, which is a structure. And then the difference between all of them is 
the side chains, so what molecules are added onto the end, they're also synthetic chemicals. Even going beyond the Keplosporins, and you know, even things that you would think like flucloxacillin, cloxacillin, oxacillin, mafacillin, you know, these generally won't cross-react with penicillin amoxicillin or, you know, piperacillin won't cross-react with them. No. Well, the, the only cross-reactivity that we've got really strong evidence for is in situations where there's side chain homology. So like you say, it is possible to be allergic to the beta-lactamarine, but it's, it's much less common than being allergic to the side chain. And so the evidence that we've got is first-generation kephalosporins and the aminopenicillins and keftazidine and astreanam because their side chain is actually remarkably similar. Oh. So keftazidine is our third generation kephalosporin that has antipsudomonal cover. Astreanam is, uh, well, it's in its own little class of its own, but it's a beta-lactam. The way that I remember their cross-reactivity is that they both have A, Z, and T in their name. And so I, uh, <laughs> uh, that means that they're similar as far as I'm concerned. Right, I'm going to read through all the penicillins now and find uh, something else that's got A, Z, and T just to mess with you. Uh, but but that's about it, you know, in terms of cross-reactivity. But there's if you get labeled with a penicillin allergy, there's quite a lot of reluctance to then go and use other stuff, and like including the kephalosporins. So if you're in beta-lactam country, people are jumping over the kephalosporins to go to the uh, to the carbapenems where they know that there's less cross-reactivity. And carbapenems are not particularly allergenic at all. So you are minimizing the risk. But my point is that you, you could use a kephalosporin in a lot of situations with no additional risk, essentially. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how little this is questioned Yeah. in terms of people just accept that it's a penicillin allergy. And I think when I get called for patients and when they say there's a penicillin allergy, my heart sinks a little bit. And my follow-up question immediately after that is always, what is the nature of the penicillin allergy? Oh, and I expect they give a detailed response because they've taken a penicillin history and they're, they're ready and waiting for your uh, question. Is that right? What, is that what you were about to say, Callum? I think that's part of the role of the infection specialist is to be the person who comes and, and says, you know, prompts this. Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah. People have a You've lot to think before. about. Yeah. And it's... um. It is difficult, you know, it's not going to be the top of people's list when someone's unwell of sepsis, you know, to clarify that. But I think it, it should be higher up the list for the reasons we outlined about the poor outcomes. You know, they're getting inferior treatment. Well, yeah, I mean, if you give a glycopeptide for staph aureus bacteremia, compared to a beta-lactam, that's the 20% reduction in good outcome. Yeah, that's huge. Uh, with them. Like, if that... Uh, like, Contrast to cardiology people... and... You know, the marginal gains of using different types of antiplatelets, you know, yeah. is it clopidogrel or ticagrel, you know, very large studies looking at this and you're getting quite marginal benefits over a long period of time, whereas this is a huge gain. So, yeah, um, maybe maybe it's on us for not um, swinging the flag. It can get it can get a little bit frustrating because you feel like you're you're saying the same thing over and over again. But maybe yeah. when this uh, this episode of the podcast goes viral and everybody practices medicine, hears it and then. We won't have to tell people because they'll be like, oh, I heard this podcast. With our massive listenership. <laughs> yeah, they, they said, you know, penicillin allergies are um, nonsense. Uh, so, Well, they're not nonsense. It's just that the, the, the fact that they go unchallenged is bad for the patient. And if it was uh, a drug that you were giving that had a 
you know, a 20% survival disadvantage, you would never give it. And yes. yet people continue to apply this penicillin allergy without challenge. But I, I think the times they are changing, actually, Cam, there's been a lot of work on risk assessment for penicillin allergy and direct delabeling. And that's something that we're rolling out in Scotland. And there's lots of trials going on hmm. uh, about that. We talked about getting this patient from a label of an, of an allergy to removing that. And how do we do that? So, I mean, the first step is take a proper history. You need to know what you're dealing with. There's that thousand bed hospital with that one anaphylactic patient. You need to make sure that that anaphylactic patient is not sitting in front of you. You need to make sure that he's part of the 100 that aren't anaphylaxis and preferably part of the uh, 90 who don't actually have an allergy at all. So the basics of taking a a penicillin healthy, I divide it into the drug and then the reaction. So firstly, you need to, and this can be difficult if the allergy is historical, but these are the things to think about. So exactly which antibiotic was given and was it an injection? Was it a tablet? Then when, in terms of the reaction, when did it happen? Is it recent or was it, you know, years ago? What happened? So did they just have a rash? Did they have GI upset? In particular, was there facial swelling, signs of angioedema, or any sign of anaphylaxis? So anaphylaxis is essentially shock and compromise of various systems. So that can be your blood pressure, hypotension. It can be wheeze, respiratory compromise. It can be your trachea, um, angioedema, and and the trachea swelling shut. Or it can be um, GI, so people can get upper GI spasm, uh, and that's because of uh, ischemia to the stomach. And then skin manifestations as well, of course. Uh, Where did this happen? Was it in the hospital? Was it in the community? How long did this take to happen? Was it a minute after you took a penicillin tablet or was it a week uh, after you'd started a treatment course? What treatment was given? In particular, did you uh, receive adrenaline? The last bit is just making sure that that the reaction was not a severe cutaneous adverse reaction or scar. I'll just chat about them just now. Uh, So scars are a type four hypersensitivity reactions. They're T-cell mediated. And there's a bunch of them. There's Steven Johnson syndrome, also known as toxic epidermal necrolysis. There's acute generalized exanthematous pustulosis or AGEP. And then there's DRESS, drug reaction with eosinophilia and systemic symptoms. And these are all skin hypersensitivity reactions, which are much harder to treat than anaphylaxis. So by uh, to contrast the two, anaphylaxis untreated has a mortality of 20%. Treated, it's less than 1%. Scars, by contrast, have uh, a treated mortality of 20%. So one in five of your patients will die of this if they get it. So it is essential that when you're doing this assessment that you make sure the reaction that they had was not a scar because if they do did have that, that is an absolute contraindication to ever being challenged with that antibiotic ever again. Mm. So that's quite in-depth history taking and I guess all very well for an infection specialist coming along and this is only going to change if everybody feels empowered to, every clinician feels empowered when they see a patient who's got this label to, to have a quick way of saying, no, this isn't a true penicillin allergy, or rather, this is something that we can challenge. Ah, are you aware of any risk scoring systems that you uh, want to mention at this point? Well, you basically want something that would like 
say that this patient could be trialed of a penicillin fast. Mm -hmm. Um, wait, do you genuinely not know? <laughs> so we could maybe call it pen fast. <laughs> we could. I suppose in particular, Jason Trubiano could, who's an Australian physician who invented the PEMFAST score, along with a bunch of other people, of course. There are a bunch of other penicillin delabeling scoring systems, but this is the simplest one that I found. Its external validation data is quite impressive. And I like it because you really only have to ask like four questions and you've got a score. Okay, don't stalk us through it. Sure. So the first, the, the pen is the patient reports the penicillin allergy. So if they do that, you then analyze according to four characteristics, which are F, A, S, and T. F is five years or less since the reaction. That would give you two points. A is, was anaphylaxis uh, present? That gives you two points. S is, was there a severe cutaneous adverse reaction? That's another two points. And then T is, was treatment required? And that's one point. So it's... Um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven in total. And how do you interpret this? So if you have a score of four to five, so you, um, you know, the A and the S, it's either anaphylaxis or a scar, you're unlikely to get both. So that's why five is the maximum. Uh, but say your score is four to five, your risk of having a true hypersensitivity reaction is about 50%. And uh, in those patients, we would actually recommend not using penicillins or cephalosporins with the caveats that we've mentioned above and continue to label them as penicillin allergic. If you had a score of three, so that will would give you a risk of true hypersensitivity of about 20%. And there uh, we would recommend continuing to label them as penicillin allergic, but you could use cephalosporins. Score is one to two. The risk of true allergy is 5%, and you could consider delabeling them unless they had a severe cutaneous adverse reaction. And if their score is uh, zero, the risk of true sensitivity is less than 1%, and you could delabel them promptly. And in fact, in reality, most people have scores of zero or one or two. Uh, and so most people are suitable for delabeling. In fact, if you score a zero, there's no argument for directly delabeling them because if you've not had any evidence of anaphylaxis or severe cutaneous adverse reaction and you never require treatment for your allergy and it was more than five years ago, the chances that you have a persisting allergy are very slim indeed. The other thing I should point out at this point is that um, what's that five-year thing about? You know, why, why five years? Uh, the reason is that even if you have had a true allergy, a true IgE-mediated type 1 hypersensitivity response to penicillin, let's say, people's atopy tends to wane with time. And so by the time you get five years, your risk of maintaining your allergy status is about 50%. And by the time you get to 10 years, it's about 20%. So 80% of people have desensitized over, over a 10-year period. And we don't know what happens to that remaining 20%. Do they continue to be allergic until for the rest of their lives or do they then continue to desensitize as well? I, I don't know the answer to that. But the if it's not been happening in the last five years, that's strongly indicative that they uh, uh, could have desensitized. And so that's why that parameter is in there. Hmm. So we've done our PENFAST score and we're going to move on next to say 
we're going to give them a penicillin challenge. Now, people will come across allergy testing, so skin patching or other mm. skin testing, or they might come across challenge or desensitizing therapies. So can we just maybe clear up some of the confusion around that? What what is what is it should we should be doing for these patients if you were say a GP and you had a patient come in and you mm. you were wanting to deliver them? Well, I mean the you mean after you've taken a history? Yes. So you've got your you've... PenFast score, say it's zero or one. Yeah, yeah. Nice right. and straightforward patient. Well, the, there's three things that you could do really. One is that you could do some skin prick testing and you could check for IgE. We don't do this because we don't really have access to it. That's kind of more the domain of the allergist and uh, immunologist. We're not allergists and immunologists, and so we don't really... Uh, do that. The idea is that you would really only want to do that if you really thought the patient patient was allergic, and by confining our delabeling to people whose PenFast score is um, zero to three, the idea is that they they almost definitely don't have a penicillin allergy, and so IgE testing or uh, skin prick testing would be a waste of time. The second thing you can do is you can directly delabel them. So if you have somebody and their side effect, sorry, their allergy is really just a side effect, we've, we, sorry, we've got advice in our local guidance that you can just directly delabel them. Now, we, we were a bit worried that some teams would be reluctant to do that when we first started rolling out this guidance, and we were pleasantly surprised that people took to it very well. I, I think there was actually quite a lot of will to delabel these people, but they just kind of needed permission that you know, if you get nausea with fluoxetine, that you're not allergic to every penicillin, and you have to avoid cephalosporins for the rest of your life as well. And just putting that in a guideline kind of empowered people to uh, to remove that label. And then the third thing you can do is you can do a challenge. The main reason for doing a challenge, I think, is just to reassure everybody that this allergy is nonsense, or maybe it was true at some time, but it's, that's no longer the case. And up in Scotland, the Scottish Antimicrobial Prescribing Group has sort of published a, a challenge protocol that we've been using in Scotland. And it's, it essentially goes as follows. You Firstly, you make sure that the patient is stable and that their news is less than two. Uh, and then you will administer either flucloxacillin or amoxicillin, depending on what you want to then go on and use or what the patient states that they were allergic to previously. And then you will check their OBS at time zero, 20 minutes, 40 minutes, 60 minutes, and 120 minutes. And then if you get to two hours and there's been no uh, reaction, then the patient is not allergic and they can be directly delabeled from there. And in fact, if they are properly allergic, they're probably going to have a response in the first 20 minutes, particularly if you're suspecting the patient is anaphylactic, although if they're anaphylactic, you probably shouldn't be delabeling them currently. The first 20 minutes is the most dangerous bit. And if they're okay at that point, then uh, the observation is taken at you know, 40, 60, and 120 minutes are just to ensure that there's no, to, to provide more evidence that uh, the patient is not allergic. Hmm. So it's nice and straightforward. You do your, meet the patient, take the history, do your pen pass score, you then get a nice safe setting and you uh, give them the challenge and then you delabel them. Done. Well, but is it done, Cal? Because we then need to keep that label. 
and there's a problem there, isn't there? Yeah. So sometimes with handovers or change in care, uh, notes, old letters, it can be difficult to keep that delabeling at the top of the pile of papers, I guess. Mm. So what you might find is someone comes into hospital and the diligent person who's clerking them in will find an old letter that says penicillin allergy, but they might miss the section in allergy sections that says Dr. McRae has delabeled this patient on this date. And then they still get the, uh, the inferior antibiotics despite being delabeled or potentially the patient doesn't remember and they report to penicillin allergy and they don't recall uh, mm. being delabeled. Uh, which is why we give people patient information leaflets and send letters to their general practitioner so that they're up and make sure that the electronic records are up, updated. But despite all these measures, it can still sometimes slip through the net. Yeah, or there can be reluctance in primary care to accept the delabeling. Um, we've had really? a, a couple of, yeah, a couple of um, uh, emails from GPs sort of saying that they didn't feel comfortable removing the, the allergy status uh, from the patient's notes. And, that, and that's despite us doing an inpatient challenge that was documented. And the, the way that we're trying to maintain the, the labeling status is we don't remove the penicillin allergy from where it is in our electronic patient record. Instead, you know, there's a, a bit where you put the substance and that says penicillin, then there's a bit where you try to describe the reaction. And a lot of the time it just says unknown. But what I do is I, I delete that bit and then I say successfully delabeled on and then I put the date so that they can go and look in the notes if they want to. And then it says patient is not penicillin allergic. And that's the bit that I ask for clinical teams to put in the discharge letter as well uh, to the GP. But that can fall down if the, if the team forgets and then the label will remain in the GP notes. Uh, and also there is sometimes reluctance from primary care to remove the label. Uh, I, th I think that that comes from a point of presumed safety, you know, like might think to themselves, it's all well and good if they've been delabeled in a hospital setting where if they actually do have reaction, they can get appropriate treatment. But if they are allergic, if, if they get an allergic reaction in the GP practice, that's a lot more serious. Yeah, or home, I guess. That's where I think it comes from, yeah. But I think it's just a lack of recognition of the harms that were that are, that are being caused by not delabeling. So that's us talked through allergy and the different types of the gel creams classifications, the uh, a little bit in the details about how that works, prevalence, uh, how to assess this, the PENFAST score, and then how to actually go about delabeling. We're kind of just describing our local practice, which is different again from uh, what people are doing in other bits of uh, Scotland and uh, in different parts of the UK as well. But hopefully the statistics that we have mentioned at the beginning about cross-reactivity with penicillins and, and cephalosporins and the prevalences of true allergy in the hospital population that has been reported to multiple centres all over the world. So like those statistics, you can take and assume that they are valid in your local uh, hospital. And so if you want a bit more confidence about how to delabel patients, this is just an example of our local practice. And is there anywhere that we could point people if they're looking for more detail or information or resources? Yeah, there's. Um, we might put it in the show notes if that's all right, Callum, but there's... Um, the Scottish Antimicrobial Prescribing Group has a, 
web page uh, with all the penicillin allergy documentation that we've got but also there's a there's a brilliant web page from the internet book of critical care on penicillin allergy and we'll include a link to that in the show notes too questions comments suggestions why don't you send them into idiotspodcasting at gmail.com until next time i'm jane i'm callum see you then bye